Afternoon. Good evening. This is Dove Tuzman, and you're on equal footing again. We are talking about the laws of the laws of Kashrut tonight, the kosher laws, the dietary restrictions that, as observant Jews, we follow. Don't tune out if you're not Jewish. This is more interesting than you think. Why kosher? Why are these abstruse abstruse rules? Not mixing meat and dairy. Uh, letting the blood out of the meat, not having shellfish, not having pork, not eating animals that are scavengers. There's That's just the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot of rules here. Are they just random religious mandates from thousands of years ago we just follow because it is what it is? Or is there some sort of other, is there something else going on here? Is it a, is there a nutritional science to it? Is it a, uh, is there anthropology? Is there history to it? What else is, what are the bases of these, of these rules? All right. Well, we're joined by folks that are going to give us perspectives, different perspectives on this. Obviously, we're going to get the theological perspective. Let's start with that. It's a guest that's been on equal footing before, Rabbi Mike Moskowitz. Rabbi Moskowitz is the scholar in residence at the, at, uh, for trans and queer Jewish studies at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, the world's largest LGBT synagogue. He's been on before on some of those issues. He's a deeply traditional and radically progressive advocate. Rabbi Moskowitz has received three ultra-Orthodox ordinations while learning in the Mir in Jerusalem and the Bet, Bet Midrash Gavoha in Lakewood, New Jersey. He is a David Hartman Center Fellow and the author of Textual Activism and Graceful Masculinity. He's the co-editor of Chaver Up. His new book, Seasonal Resistance, will be out in the winter. Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, thanks for coming on Equal Footing again and giving us the theological grounding for the kosher laws. Thank you so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure. The Hebrew Bible has well, many different rules. Rabbi Moskowitz, let, let's quickly, before we go, I want you to give us the primer, but let us I'm going to quickly introduce our other guests and we'll do that. That's all right. We're joined by Dr. Roger Horowitz. Dr. Horowitz is a historian of American business. Uh, I'm giving, I'm, is the director, sorry, I'm going to start up. He's the director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Library. He's a professor of history and Jewish studies at the University of Delaware. His book, very cool book, Kosher USA, how Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food received the National Jewish Book Award in American Jewish Studies, the Dorothy Rosenberg Award and the Jewish Diaspora. It was named uh, an outstanding academic book as well by Choice Magazine. Dr. Horowitz's earlier books include Putting Meat on the American Table, Taste, Technology, and Transformation, uh, and Negro and white unite and fight a social history of industrial unionism in meatpacking. So a lot of food history here. It's hard to find an expert in food 
history. Dr. Roger Horowitz is that. Dr. Horowitz is active in professional organizations. Uh, he's a trustee of the Jewish Historical Society of Delaware, a member of the Scholarly Council of the American Jewish Historical Situa- uh, Association, so an anthropologist, a food historian, and historian in general. His current research focuses on the impact of Jewish preference for chicken on American foodways and the nation's political economy. Dr. Roger Horowitz, welcome to Equal Footing for the first time. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you for reaching out, and thank you for the kind introduction. This should be fun. <laughs> Some of these topics are great. Oh, a- How Coke became... We have to have you on the show again to talk a little bit more about that, about the evolution of certain foods becoming kosher in the United States. Another first I'd be time- happy to. It'd be great. Another first-time guest, Laura Shema. Laura is a registered dietitian nutritionist. Uh, she's been operating her own private practice in New York and New Jersey for over 23 years. She has a master's degree in health and nutrition. She's, uh, she has a number of uh, kids, four kids. I think I hope it's been less, it's, it's best been updated since, uh, since this bio came out, Laura. Uh, she helps an array of people, many Orthodox clients, not all, many Orthodox clients get a healthy body and mind. Laura Shema's clientele runs the gamut from people with eating disorders to those dealing with hypertension, high cholesterol, Crohn's disease, diabetes, even cancer. Laura has a unique ability to relate to each and every client, helping them reach their individual goals. She's published in Marianne Cohen's book, Lasagna for Lunch, Declaring Peace with Emotional Eating. Uh, Laura Shema's articles are also featured in magazines such as The Image, Wellspring, and SBH Source. So, uh, Laura, welcome to Equal Footing for the first time, giving us the nutritional science perspective. Thank you for having me. Let's dive in on kosher. Rabbi Moskowitz, do we have non-Jewish listeners? We have secular Jewish listeners that might not remember all the rules. What are the basic rules of kosher? Sure. The word itself means fitting or appropriate. And so it's often used colloquially even for non-food items of ritual practice. Um, So there are a few different categories. Briefly, there's a biblical prohibition of mixtures of meat and milk, cooking them together, eating them together, deriving benefit from the mixture. And there are other categories which are rabbinic. Uh, as an extension of the ones which are biblical. And there are also certain applications to different types of birds, which could be kosher, even if they're not with milk, certain types of uh, fish, scales and fins, uh, certain types of insects. majority of insects and creepy collars are not kosher. And uh, in terms of a, a practical kind of lived experience of most people's Jewish kitchens, uh, kosher kitchens, they have two sets of dishes and two sets of silverware, and many people have uh, different customs of waiting after the consumption of meat uh, to have dairy products. And so the kind of broad one-stroke explanation spiritually is that there's a spiritual periodic table of elements, just like there's a physical one. And the Hebrew Bible tells us that there are certain things which are good for us on a spiritual level, certain things which are not good for us on a spiritual level. And it's less about intuiting that this is good or bad for the universe, but rather that this is kind of a decree from the source of the universe. And God says this is good for our souls. God says this is not good for our souls. Um, And so it's less a function of a judgment, this is dirty, this is bad, this is good, and more just kind of a humble understanding that we don't necessarily have the sensitivity uh, to be able to intuit on a soul level what feels good and what is healthy. And so these rules uh, punctuate our experiences spiritually. 
Okay, so we have these basic rules out there. You know, fish, the fish must have uh, fins and scales. We don't eat shellfish. Uh, the animals can't be scavengers, meaning they're not animals that, that eat dead animals. Uh, the mammals have to be known, they're known as ruminants. They have to have, uh, uh, cloven hooves. They, that they're, they're, they're herbivores. They have to chew their cud. Um, there are a bunch of, bunch of rules. And there are these neutral foods, uh, fruits and vegetables and grains and fish and eggs from a kosher animal, etc. For those listeners are thinking, wait, you missed the fact that we also have to, you know, insects in the belly of the fish are not allowed or insects in the flesh. Yeah, I know. There are a whole bunch of other rules here, right, Rabbi Mike? I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot. those shortage of rules. And there are even bigger categories of ritual slaughter. There, exactly. There's, there's uh, all sorts of, you know, specifics, but in terms of broad strokes, uh, there, there are major categories that we have to prepare uh, foods and, and check them to make sure that they meet the, the standards. Right. And the purpose of tonight's show is not to go through all those rules. It's to get into the anthropology and the science as well as the religion. So you've given us a good background on the, on the religious side. The only thing, Rabbi Moskowitz, that I would, um, ask you to maybe add is on that last point of the ritual slaughter, because we're going to get into this a little bit. What, what is, what is the, the, the kashrut method or the kosher, uh, method of, of slaughtering a, an animal for meat? Roughly speaking. So from the scriptural perspective, the scriptural perspective, it's kind of said without great detail. And it's really left up to the oral tradition and the rabbis. And historically, it's been understood as um, a kind of severing of uh, kind of the, the uh, certain parts of the neck that will then kind of uh, slaughter and kill the animal without it experiencing pain. Um, there are different rules for birds than for the say cows, but um, in short, it's a uh, kind of a kind of a slicing movement as opposed to any sort of stabbing. But it's um, so swiftly, a, uh, swiftly, and without pain. Swiftly, yeah. Okay. That's it. Okay. So let's let's talk about the history for a second here, uh, Doctor Horowitz, because it was fascinating in the in the pregame to be looking at all this research of you know anthropologically. We don't have archaeology on it, uh, there's, uh, but we interpolate that the the laws, the original laws of, of Kashrut uh, given by Moses to the people of Israel somewhere in like 14th, 13th century before the Common Era. But then there's actually lots of archaeology in all the way from, you know, uh, nine or 10 centuries before the Common Era through to the... Uh, early uh, centuries after the common era of the changing diet and in, in fact in in uh in where the the two the northern and the southern kingdoms uh were uh, you had a significant uh, there was eating of pork we know for hundreds of years after those laws probably into the 5th or 6th century before the common era you have eating of shark and skate and catfish all non-kosher fish uh through a significant period after that and then it seems it seems, Dr. Horowitz, that the that the first the first time we really see modern day kosher eating is is a is slightly into the beginning of the common era, like first second century AD. What's go, what's going on here? Are these are these kosher laws uh, were were they always the same? Uh, like what's what's happening here anthropologically? Well, when I try to explain this to my students, I start with them trying to understand that Jews are the longest-lived minority in the world. I mean, 3,000-plus years, pretty impressive. And that Jews have had to survive in societies in which they are surrounded by people who don't agree with them and often don't like them very much. So we have to develop these practices that provide cohesion 
to the Jewish community. And food is one of the best ways you can do that. I mean, food is something you eat every day is sort of obvious point. But think about it. It means this is something you practice all the time. You collect it, you eat it, you store it, you teach it. It's one of the core practices of any family, of any community. So if you can create a set of dietary practices that defines your group, you are erecting, if you will, protections against you being drawn in to the other group and to the outside groups, and you're holding, if you will, creating sort of a, a way in which you share all these things among your people and hold it together. So that's what I – so to me, kosher comes from that, from a minority people for a long time developing practices that provides cohesion in the population. And I even argue that the disagreements among kosher are part of that story, that the argument over what is kosher and is not kosher is part of the community-creating process because you have individuals, and we now have many rabbis whose works have been quoted 1,000, 2,000 years after they lived, who say this or that or the other thing. But when you cite these rabbis, you bring them in. They still live in certain ways. Their words still live. Their words still have power. So to me, that's sort of the core point. Now, the practice is always different from the idea. I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, and right? even to this day, there are differences in, like in uh, Hametz, the, 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 the issue of eating leavened grains during Passover, the difference in the which, which are considered Hametz and which not, in the Ashkenaz community, in the Sephardic community. So, well, yeah, there's, there's, well, the, the dilemma becomes, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the importance of this, the way it becomes more of an issue in the early rabbinic period, you know, after you know, the common era, after, of course, it means after the Second Temple is destroyed. Well, the Jews disperse. This is an era in which, you know, let's face it, there's virtually no mail, and there's no communications, and you these small communities all over the place. And we have divergences in kosher practices. How do you prevent that from happening? You create books. You create records, which rabbis can refer to. So you... One big, huge part of the Talmud is you create these rules about Jewish practices, very detailed, with lots of debate among them over what you should do. The Talmud is sent in various places where Jews live, and you, and you become a people of the book in which your practice is influenced by the book. And so that provides more cohesion because the, the, the oral law is far more detailed than the Torah in what you can and can't do. There's no comparison. And that's, I think, where how it becomes more consolidated among the Jewish population. So we've got a couple of, we're going to take our first break in a moment, but we're talking about why kosher. We've got a couple things. Uh, uh, in fact, before the show, we came up with like, like 10 reasons in our research why different scholars talk about, you know, why you would be kosher. Some of them you will not expect. We're going to get to them in the next segment. But the ones we've tackled here before the first uh, ad break are the ones I think everyone would probably guess. Rabbi Moskowitz, you walked us through the religious mandate and, uh, and the spiritual aspect of that as well, which I'm sure we'll touch on more. And Dr. Hurwitz, you're talking about also the preserving of tradition, of identity, of minority identity, Jewish identity uh, in this case. One would argue perhaps that in there is about, there's a mindfulness as well, a spiritual mindfulness uh, and, and also a community mindfulness. But, but, Laura Shema, I'm sure you're going to uh, get to this after the break. There are some other reasons that have been posited over the years that have to do with science and uh, dietary lifestyle and health. We're talking about why kosher, beyond the religious, the anthropological, the historical, and the nutritional, participate in our conversation by calling in to talk to Dr. Roger Horowitz, Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, Laura Shema, 
as a registered dietitian, uh, a registered nutritionist, nutritionist dietitian. I have to get that right. I apologize. Uh, by calling 718-303-9090. That's to be live on the air. 718-303-9090. If you want to send in a comment or question by text, you can do so to SMS or WhatsApp at 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062. Four zero six two. We'll be right back. Should try looking on uh, Google and searching for songs about food. Uh, it's a pr- it's a pretty fun. Fun search. All right. Equal Footing is brought to you in part by Mechanical Art Capital. Mechanical Art Capital offers practically overnight max two-day financing to watch collectors and watch dealers around the world. Unlock the cash value of your collection or your inventory through Mechanical Art Capital's buyback contracts. They're super easy. Easy to execute, just a couple pages long. You can find them on the app. Mechanical Art Capital. Put in those three words separately into your app store on your iPhone or your Android device, and you can have your watches and collections appraised quickly and free of charge, and then get capital within two days max. You can also go to their website, mechanicalartcapital.com. And finally, you can call if you want to speak to someone live and go through it, 833 Two zero nine zero nine seven two. Again, that's for Mechanical Art Capital's financing for watches. If you're a collector or a dealer, get cash based on that value. 833-209-0972. Operators are standing by. I've been okay, we're talking about why kosher. Talked about the religious, the spiritual, a little bit about the communal sense of Jewish identity. But there are other reasons that have been posited, Laura. Are there not? There are people that believe that it's good in terms of allergies and other areas of walk us through some of the health benefits that people have posited for eating a kosher lifestyle. Yeah. Having a kosher yeah. lifestyle. There's many reasons for health benefits for being kosher. So number one, when you were talking about the kosher meat, many people feel that the kosher meat is a healthier meat because it's a safer meat because the salting process removes the blood, which makes the meat safer because it's killing the disease-causing bacteria, such as salmonella. And the salt actually has antibacterial effects, which, again, makes it safer. So that alone, the kosher meat that you're eating is healthier than the non-kosher meat. Before you move off of meat, uh, I've read also that when the animal is slaughtered in a non-humane way, where the death is not uh, swift and as painless as possible, that there are hormones that are released into the meat at the point of, of death that can also be harmful. Is this is this folklore? Is, is there some truth to that as well? So I think it's controversial. Like there was, there's many people who ask if the kosher meat is more 
is healthier or more beneficial than organic meat, and that's not true. So it doesn't have, like the kosher meat doesn't have less, fewer pesticides, antibiotics, or growth hormones, but it is healthier than non-kosher meat, but it's not healthier than organic meat. That's fair. I was talking about something a little bit different, I think, the hormones that are released from the pain of, of, of death. Which that would make sense because it would be instant. Right. Right. Okay. And, and interestingly, uh, there was a, a recent study, 2012 in the United States, comprehensive uh, study, peer-reviewed, that showed that approximately 15% of kosher food shoppers in the United States were doing so primarily in order to conform to religious dietary rules. Uh, so the majority are doing so because of food quality, supervision, uh, per, or at least perceived quality. So, Right, right, because it's a much better quality. What about the things you hear about, like pork, you know, is a frequent cause of trichinosis, and 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 there's some people have like like shellfish, bacteria, uh, allergies. Walk us through a little bit. Yes, so when it comes, yes, and when it comes to let's say the seafood and and the processed meat and the pork, the difference even just comparing let's say the kosher fish versus let's say the seafood, like salmon is known as a healthier fish, and that's and that's one of the kosher fish. But when it comes to the seafood, the seafood like crab, lobster, shrimp, those are more of the bottom feeders that have a higher percentage of pollutants and much higher percentage of mercury, which is very harmful to humans. And on the, on the allergy side, uh, is there any is there any benefit in terms of lactose intolerant individuals or or folks that are prone to food allergies in terms of uh, kosher oh. eating or is there any so on the allergy side can you repeat that well let's start with lactose intolerance let's separate mm-hmm. the two as it is is becoming increasingly prevalent in in, in yeah. western countries is there is there a general benefit in in kosher eating for lactose intolerant individuals or is it uh, kind of neutral so I, I would think that's neutral because I do have many orthodox Jews that are lactose intolerant. And so, it, yeah. right, I guess there's the the parv. You, know, you can you can be ensure that it sure there doesn't. Yes, have any there will be there will be ways. There are many. The, what's good about our our kashrut and our and that we have our labels that will tell us that um, there's no dairy products and that is very good for for the allergies and people that need to stay away from 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 certain ingredients so if you need if you can't have something dairy and that's having it let's say an ou without a d and there's you know actually that there is actually no dairy in the product and that is very good for people with lactose intolerance or that with allergies Right, you know, because of the strict supervision and separation, exactly. that there's no trace trace ingredient. Exactly. Allergies. Uh, people talk yeah. a lot about shellfish uh, allergies. Uh, more often, if I'm in a restaurant, I get a question about that than anything else. So, what's what you know? Is there what's the benefit there? Is it just a trace ingredient issue, or is are shellfish allergies prevalent? You know, in the general population. In the general population, those are one of the top eight allergens that are highly anaphylactic um, to to people and like I said like like you were saying most of I would say 90 80 to 90 80 to 80 to 90% of my clientele are orthodox 
So I don't deal, I deal a lot with allergies, but not so much with the shellfish because they ha- they wouldn't even know if they were allergic to it besides with a, through a blood test with the allergies. Right, right. From the, from the allergist. Yeah. Dr. Horowitz, it's a little bit the intersection here around nutritional science and the history and anthropology. One of the rules I don't think we've mentioned here on the air is also about the, the hand washing. Um, and so if you go back, you go back to the, the, the you know, pre-common era uh, period, uh, was there kind of a communal health benefit from the kosher laws, you know, not only the, the eating, but the, the, the hand washing and so forth. How, how important was that in terms of, not necessarily cultural identity, but communal health vis-a-vis other neighboring communities? Well, you got to start with a, with that. The Jewish, you know, kosher laws were food laws that nobody else had in the pre-common era. I mean, eventually the Islamic world develops a set of food laws, um, but really derived in many ways from the Jewish laws, but there's nothing. You know, in the Babylonian Empire, the empires around there, and so the because of the kosher laws, Jews are much more concerned about care of their food. They have much more concern about where their food comes from than the than the other societies around them. So, yes, there's a health benefit because of the attention that goes to the food, and you have Jewish people who are raising food for Jews. Now, they're also selling wheat to non-Jews, but they're selling to Jews, and so you have, if you will, eyes on the producers in a way that is not the same thing in those of the societies. And so I think that's kind of what I think what you're getting at in terms of a health benefit. I mean, the, the slaughter rules, for example, that were just mentioned there, nobody else has slaughter rules at the time. You know, the Jews have these slaughter rules that are really designed to prevent the animal from feeling pain and feeling terror at being slaughtered. And that does matter in terms of the flesh. And I say this as someone who studied meat, that animals that are scared do generate enzymes that affect their flesh. And the meatpacking industry, many years later, does a lot of work to prevent the animals from knowing they're being killed because they're aware of it, aware of the impact. Well, part of the whole point of the Jewish slaughter rules is that the animal does not feel fear, that there is no terror associated with the process of dying. That does make that flesh, again, we're talking, you know, turn of the common era there, far safer and than, you know, flesh that's killed by the other animals, you know, that are, that are being slaughtered at that time. So absolutely, I think there's a benefit there. Rabbi Moskowitz, does any of this bother you? Is there a, is there a part of you that that's like, listen, uh, this is all rationalization after the fact. These are rules that come from the Torah and the Oral Torah and the you know rabbinical teachings, and the point is to 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 follow and to have a spiritual connectedness. It should it be about something else like abnegation, denying. Uh, denying ourselves certain pleasures of, I don't know, you know, eating oysters or, or is it okay to go through what may seem like a rationalization exercise that has to do with, you know, science, the nutritional, nutritional health, science and history? It's a great question. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. You know, we don't know the reason for things. We have reasons. Um, and the, the idea that there would be additional benefits, both in a cultural or social or health, uh, it's part of what we believe as a, a more complex system of of benefits and, and goodness that, that, that come from living such a lifestyle. Um, and I think you see this certainly when it comes to aspects of self-control. The mystical work of the Zayr points out that the word for bread, lechem, is a language of milchama, of like fighting and struggle 
Um, you see this, uh, that the word for taste and reason in Hebrew are the same tam. The Kutzker Rebbe points out that um, on a physical level, we need to eat food, and God made it easy, perhaps too easy, to eat food by giving it good taste. Uh, and so, too, on a spiritual level, when it comes to uh, doing the commandments, it's important uh, that we follow the, uh, the Hebrew Bible and, and the tradition. But at the same time, uh, those commandments were given reasons to make it easier for us to be able to um, to perform them with a greater understanding. So I think it's important to hold both the the, the understanding that we do things because uh, we have a tradition that's the right thing for us to do, and simultaneously recognizing that there are, uh, once it's part of the tradition and it's good, it's worth exploring, you know, the benefits uh, in all of these different planes. So if a firm listener, an observe, a really observant listener is, is thinking, is feeling discomfort around talking about nutritional science around uh, kosher eating, there's something to... F- feel uncomfortable about like it's okay to have this discussion also recognize those benefits uh or explore that is that is that what i'm hearing rabbi absolutely i I think it's important to recognize um the goodness in everything that god does um and so when we have a greater understanding of the universe and as we uncover and discover uh deeper meaning behind some of the traditions and uh ancillary benefits to our practices, it's just it's an additional source of gratitude that if it turns out that these things are actually healthier and they're better for uh, different aspects of being, so then we should have a deeper sense of appreciation that, uh, that God instructed us to live in such a way, because not only is it good on a spiritual front, but it's also good on a physical front. And on the other side of that coin, Rabbi, if, you, if we have discoveries in nutritional science that there is something very healthy in the diet that's that's proscribed that's trait that's not allowed under kosher laws um should we therefore question whether that law is outdated i mean we know in the first at least thousand if not 1500 years of us as a people after the commandments are are given uh from mount sinai that you have uh, significant changes in diet. I mean, you still have pork meat for hundreds of years um, in Jewish communities. You have scaled fish being eaten for for many hundreds more. Um, is it is it okay to ever think about about changes in the in these laws? I know it's a very controversial question, and there's differences between a, I think it's a, Torah and oral Torah. But what's your view on that? Sure, I think it's a very fair question. Um, I think personally, that there's no contradiction ever between science and, and Torah, but it's important that we get them both right. When people thought smoking was healthy, uh, everybody smoked, and then they got the memo that it's not so healthy to smoke, um, and so then it became forbidden to, to smoke. And so I think it's important to recognize that uh, the Hebrew Bible empowers us to use the best scientific data that we have available, certainly when it comes to medicine and healing, um, but as it evolves, we have to also come with it with a certain amount of humility that uh, that we certainly don't know it all yet. And so it's important to hold both of those. But certainly to the extent that uh, there are things that non-kosher animals provide uh, for prisons' well-being, whether it's uh, around joints and certain things that exist, you know, in non-kosher animals, um, to the extent that a person needs the benefits of non-kosher animals uh, for a healthy living, 
we have ways of ingesting it that are not prohibited, and, and people put them in, in capsules. And, and there are other things uh, that when the competing interest between a person's physical needs, uh, and like, for example, eating on a fast day, if a person is in such a situation, that a person actually doesn't uh, ever lose out by, uh, by keeping kosher. Right, those pikoach nefesh uh, exemption exemptions, right? The 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 survival in in life always takes priority. And also in terms of you know even the threshold a little bit before that you know if a person is uh, is their life isn't in danger but there's their quality of life issues uh, the the spectrum of Jewish law is, is complex not everything has the same source in terms of competing interests. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think again like. The, uh, the overall perspective here is that there is uh, deep benefit in having faith that God loves us and God cares for us and is giving us um, kind of these uh, commandments as ways of connecting to a healthy way of being. We're going to take our next break. We are here with Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, Dr. Roger Horowitz, Laura Shema. We are talking about Kashrut laws, kosher law, kosher laws. Why kosher? We're going beyond the theological. We'll be right back. Equal footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. All right. I love the immediate feedback of live radio. Uh, I have a couple of listeners that have asked me for the source of this controversial statement that the Jewish people in the first millennia and a half after receiving the laws in the Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu uh, were uh, uh, archaeologically, we know we're not eating kosher uh, all the time. And I've got the sources for you. A uh, number of studies, actually. Uh, there's a published in Smithsonian Magazine and Science, uh, peer-reviewed, uh, list, uh, a couple here, uh, it, that, that it's, a lot of them emanate from work with the Origins of Judaism Archaeological Pro, uh, Project. Um, this was a 25, almost 25-year 25 archaeological study using fish bones and cartilage, um, that were found in Jewish communities, um, in both the old, uh, northern and, and, and southern kingdoms and again evidence of significant ed- evidence of eating pork i said fish not just fish but bones and cartilage um from both mammals and and fish including over a hundred thousand uh, fish remains that were gathered from dozens of sites in israel spanning over ten thousand years from neolithic times uh to the present showing uh widespread 
uh, consumption of catfish, sharks, and skate for almost 1,500 years, and widespread consumption of pork um, until about 500 or 600 years before the Common Era. So there's quite a bit of evidence, and if you give, if you write me, I'm happy to send you as well a number of the references to those studies. But if you put in Smithsonian or science, you can also put in the lead scientist, archaeologist, Jonathan Adler, A-D-L-E-R, you'll see a lot of research on this. Uh, okay, so we're talking about the benefits of, or I shouldn't say the benefits, that, that loads the question. Why, why kosher? And we've hit a bunch of them. One of them we've kind of touched on is animal welfare. And we have a couple of listeners pointing out that, that there's, this is somewhat controversial. So, uh, Laura, maybe you could get us uh, started here. There's been the, the, the ritual slaughter, uh, approach. We've talked about some of the health benefits of, of, uh, of kosher meat. Do you think that kosher meat is, um, is, is tied to ethical husbandry? Uh, is, 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 are we also making an animal welfare decision when we purchase, purchase kosher meat? I think, um, I think that we're treating the animals in a better way. I think that we're respecting the animal. At the same time, we're thinking about the safety of the people and, and the animal. Now, there's been some, and I'm riffing a little bit on a couple of notes I've gotten here from, from listeners, but there has been in recent years kind of a backlash against uh, uh, Shechita or the ritual uh, slaughter. Uh, maybe, Dr. Harwitz, you could help us understand that. The, in some nations, they're outright banning um, ritual slaughter, both uh, both from a kosher perspective and a halal perspective, halal being um, the, the referring to the dietary laws in Islamic tradition. What, what's, what's that about, Dr. Harwitz? Well, a key element of uh, kosher ritual slaughter is the animal has to be alive and conscious at the time that it's killed. Uh, and that's at odds with the conventional practices in the non-kosher practice of slaughter where the animal is stunned, gotcha. essentially hit in the head with a, with a, with a, with a mallet or with a, with a slug, so it's unconscious. Um, and because of the prohibition against you know, consuming animals that have died before they, they were, were killed or who were damaged, uh, which is these are very important kosher rules, uh, rabbis have long held that they have to be able to see if the animal can stand and is conscious before soldiers perform to make sure the animal is not diseased or in some other way damaged. Uh, that's, that's sort of the core of that idea. Now, I need to say that this is actually a restriction on practices in the meat industry today where you often have problems with animals that are diseased or, or sick who are brought to slaughter, and these animals would not be allowed to be slaughtered by the, in, in terms of kosher rules there. But that's really the, the, uh, the origin of the controversy. Um, this has been a huge issue for, for years. It's been a source of anti-Semitism. Uh, it's fair to say that the, uh, Adolf Hitler, one of his strategies for becoming the head of the Nazi party was a campaign against Shahita because of the alleged inhumanity of the Jews bringing in the blood libel as an example. So, Dangerous, dangerous territory uh, to walk into. Um, so, so the that's, animal, that's the animal the welfare issue is kind of a push because I, I do see the perspective where there there are ethical husbandry uh, advocates who are saying it's more humane to to kill the unconscious animal, basically. Well, that's I mean, there. There are clearly you know arguments in that area. There, the what I would just say is that the, the issue came has come up in the seventies in the U.S. A key person weighing in on this was Temple Grandin. 
who's known for her commitment to animals, a brilliant, interesting woman, a wonderful biopic. Uh, and, and her view was that if kosher slaughter is done correctly, if underlined correctly, it is the most it is the most humane method of slaughter. Now, there are plenty of ways of doing kosher slaughter, which is not humane. The shackle and hoist system, which I could detail, which was widely used in Latin America until recently uh, and did show up in American plants, was definitely not humane. Uh, but she's devised a system that the Orthodox Union has endorsed and is in place in American plants that do kosher slaughter. So, we can get into the weeds on this one, but but there are ways in which it can be made very humane and ways in which it can actually not be humane. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a caller in a sec, but I just want to put the numbers out there again. If you want to participate live in this conversation with Dr. Roger Horowitz, Laura Shema, Rabbi Mike Moskowitz on kind of the origins of and why kosher, you can call 718 718- Three zero three nine zero nine zero. That's seven one eight three zero three nine zero nine zero. Or you can text a question or a comment to nine one seven four two eight four zero six two. So the great French gastronome Brillat Savarin said, "Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are." Um, to you again, Roger, Har- uh, Doctor Harwood. Um, do you think today, actually, to you and to all three guests, how core? Is is eating kashrut to Jewish identity? We hit it from different angles, uh, the religious mandate, but from a sociological perspective, an anthropological perspective, is this as important to Jewish identity as it used to be, Doctor Horowitz? Well, probably not. I mean, just looking at the facts, because so much of the Jewish population is kosher only occasionally. The vast majority is that that's the case. Uh, kosher, and this is the people complain about this, that, you know, Passover, everybody wants to have kosher meat. Well, what happens the rest of the year? How are we going to have kosher meat for Passover? People don't, don't, don't eat other parts of the year. So that is definitely an issue there. Um, to what extent it's a consistent practice. However, I would say that kosher needs to be understood as a practice. Not just a set of rules, it is a set of rules, but it's also a practice. And one thing I learned going around talking about my book is how many different ways people had of what they thought was kosher. It might not be the way rabbis think is kosher, but they thought they were following kosher laws there. So while it may not be, if you will, the sort of rigorous kosher defined in the Torah and the Talmud, eating Jewish remains very important to the Jewish population. I think that's a very important distinction because there are many people that, that consider that are making sacrifices or not eating shellfish or not eating pork. They're not mixing meat and dairy, um, but they're not eating at kosher restaurants only. And then there's issues of cross contamination and trace ingredients and utensils and so forth. They use that. that means they're not technically eating kosher, but they're Jewish eating. As you said. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz, does this make you uncomfortable? Because it, it as, as Dr. Harwood's pointed out, I mean, you're talking about 15% or so of the Jewish population in the United States is eating like truly strictly kosher, more or less. Some people have say a little bit higher, but it, it's, it's a small minority. Um, does it make you uncomfortable as Rabbi when someone says, you know, I eat, I eat kosher, but you know, they're not eating, they're not really strictly adhering to, to kashrut? It doesn't make me uncomfortable. I think when we support the structure of ritual observance, then the structures are 
reinforced and, and stronger. And it's not just about keeping kosher, about Shabbat, uh, the famous quote, you know, more than Jews uh, have kept the Shabbat, the Sabbath, the Sabbath have kept the Jews. So when we are connected and when we're conscious and when uh, Judaism informs our decisions, then we are more connected and it's more alive and we feel in relationship and it's dynamic. Everybody has to ask the same question, I think, which is, you know, what does God want from me in this moment? And keeping kosher can look very different, even in the Orthodox world, in the Hasidic world, in the Sephardic world. Uh, there are many places for stringencies, there are many places for leniencies. So if people are engaged in that process uh, and are thinking about their Jewish identity and their Jewish uh, observance, when they are moving about the world and what they're eating and what they're not eating, I think the thought process itself of, is this okay for me? Should I be doing this? Should this not be what I'm doing? That itself is a massive win. And the fact that people might answer those questions differently uh, is less bothersome to me than people who are doing it without thinking, even if they are more observant. Right. Laura, to, to the rabbi's point, I mean, there are well over 12 million uh, kosher consumers in the U.S. These are consumers in the U.S. who who buy uh, regularly buy or seek out always kosher products, and there are only about seven and a half million Jews in the United States. And we know that a small minority really keep kosher most of the time. So, um, is is being kosher really a fundamental part of Jewish identity at this point, or is it a little bit vestigial in terms of our community? So I see all types of levels in in my office, but I do believe keeping kosher does link us together from generation to generation and our ancestors. So I am honored to be a practicing Orthodox Jew, and I do believe that it really does connect me with my friends and my family and people even that I don't know. Like when I travel with my four kids, and if we're going to, let's say, a Caribbean island, I bring all my food for a week. And when we get there and we have families and friends, and they're all bringing their food as well, and someone runs out of something, and we have a whole chat, who has this, who has that, I really feel that that connects all of us. And it really just winds up being beautiful. Yeah, I love that. You make uh, lemonade out of lemons there. Uh, exactly. No pun intended. Yeah, exactly. you have to go through that trouble, but it does connect Who needs connect this? You. Who needs yeah. that? And it really exactly. does. It brings such a connection, and it teaches the kids about their about their where they come from and what yeah. you know their their religion. Caller on the line. You've been very patient. Let's get you before we go to our last ad break. Uh, can we put on? Let's see what what. Uh, which which one is he on? On on one? Okay. Uh, let's see. Good evening. I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry. Uh, yeah. From me, your conversation. Me too, me too actually. <laughs> listen, listen. Tell us. You're not talking about something that should have been talked about. The greatest public relations invention by the Jew was the kosher delicatessen. The corner kosher delicatessen. It was the greatest publicity for Jews and their foods. But the tragedy with life is and time is most of our food killed us salt fat meats was the biggest enemy of of the jewish body especially the nazis but the Jew, the food we've eaten whether kosher or not has been the problem kosher delicatessens are disappeared in the city of new york they used to, the cats are still around 
stage used to be here. Gone. There may be a second. Yeah, Cats, I think, is only like the what? It's the second floor. So I don't know. One of these. It's one floor. The point I'm saying is. As the dietary habits of Jews have changed, and I'm not talking the Orthodox, I'm talking the majority of Jews, their dietary habits have changed. I love a corned beef or pastrami sandwich, but I don't eat it anymore. So what's your, hey, well, kosher what's, or not, your what's your question? I, I agree with you. The disappearance of the of the uh, kosher like, deli whether sucks. kosher or not, the the meats, the uh, whether it was kosher or not, I don't think the people who control kosher understood the dietary habits of people overall and the, the destructiveness of the food, whether kosher or not. I'd like to know okay. what they think. I hear you. So you're saying basically that there's something uh, vestigial about um, you know, the the, the hey, It was great today. when we were doing it. It was fantastic. I mean, I love those. <laughs> but overall, it's, it's disappeared. Uh, maybe the Orthodox think it, it to some extent, but overall, these places and the kosher attitude in some things. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to talk about was butter. <laughs> we'll butter. We'll, we'll, quick, can I tell a quick funny story? We'll, just quick. Just a question on butter because we're going to run out of time. We want to uh, get no, it's a funny answer. story. The great comedy team, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, were up at Grossinger's, a Jewish place, and they were there performing, and they were having dinner. Now, Dean Martin was an Italian Catholic, and he's sitting at the table, and he, there were 12 Jewish people, and he says, you know, can I have a roll? Yeah. Can I have butter? And they all threw things out. <laughs> they started to attack him. Butter. I don't know what the, the problem with butter is. It, it was a good thing. Can you tell me, folks, what is the problem with butter? I know that margarine and butter are almost the same. All right. So let's get these very quickly. Uh, so it's kind of a rehash of the previous point here on the, the first point the caller made. Uh, but Dr. Horowitz, is this vestigial? Do you think, cause there's conflicting evidence here. On the one hand, people are, there's a, the market for kosher is expanding. It's over a $12 billion food market in the United States alone. Um, and on the other hand, we see less and less people, uh, statistics show less and less people eating, you know, kosher, strictly kosher all year round. Is the, is the market expanding or reducing? Is kosher going to go away? Oh, kosher's not going away. Absolutely not. It's embedded in our food system. It's embedded in the way manufacturers make food. Um, and I could go on and link more than one you want to know just how deeply it's embedded in the practices of food manufacturers. Nowadays, you cannot get certain ingredients, spices, oil, things like that, unless they're kosher. They just aren't made anymore mm. because the market is so oriented towards making kosher food available. So I understand the concerns about people not eating kosher and all that, but I think Rabbi said it exactly, that the fact people are thinking about it and talking about it means you've won. It means it's on the table, so to speak. And when you have you know, all these major food manufacturers program in that their foods have to be kosher certified, that means that the opportunity is always there far more easily than going to a Caribbean island that people can eat kosher in, in, in a greater extent there. So the decision-making that people make in their homes, what they want to have, it's now easier than it has been before in the U.S. to make that kind of decision to eat kosher. Lama so certainly it's there. not... Yeah, even, even in your your, your, your gas station uh, convenience store, you'll find a lot of a lot of kosher, brought a lot of products with that K or the, the U on it. Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, very quickly before our last break, butter, uh, kosher and butter, explain. Yeah, so um, butter's been around forever. It's a, it's a dairy product. Um, but, of course, in a meat restaurant, it's problematic to have it. Um, and when margarine was first kind of uh, invented or discovered, um, 
it was so new that, that the rabbis expected that people should keep the packaging on the margarine on the table so people shouldn't get confused to think that there's uh, meat and milk together. All right. I did have a Rebbe who used to to say all the time that, you know, he wasn't particularly healthy physically. He was having a lot of heart issues. And he said, I'm just the result of 72 years of corned beef sandwiches. Um, And so I think there is kind of this sensitivity. uh, And I think it's one of the things that we haven't yet spoken about is that there is a huge shift towards people diminishing the amount of uh, meat consumption because of environmental concerns and becoming vegetarians and vegans. And so there is kind of a big overlap of people who are motivated, um, you know, by these consciousness uh, issues. Yeah, after our last break we'll do a quick lightning round of some questions and one of the one of the listeners sent in a question on that the crossover between vegetarian lifestyle and kosher lifestyle we'll be right back we're going to take our last break why kosher I love the song choices today. Equal Footing is brought to you also in part by DocuVax. You've heard about DocuVax before. It's D-O-C-U-V-A-X. It's an easy-to-use digital locker to store all of your medical information. You can get the DocuVax app on your laptop or smartphone, your Android or your iPhone device in the App Store. It allows you to safely store and validate all your basic medical information, your immunization records, your lab results, x-rays and MRIs. Get reminders when you need to get an important preventative screening, like a colorectal exam or breast cancer screening. Sign up. Go to DocuVax.com. You can also call for group discounts if you mention that you heard about DocuVax on the Equal Footing Radio Show, 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933 for family discounts or small business discounts. If you want to give the DocuVax subscription service as a benefit, HR benefit, it's really cheap, $6.99 per month. You get to have all of your medical records organized in a secure HIPAA-compliant digital storage facility. And here's the biggest reason to get DocuVax. As a DocuVax subscriber, medical professionals, doctors and nurses and physicians assistants are on call for you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to validate a vaccine record, a blood test, or explain anything else in your locker, including explaining to a specialist you don't have to pay to see a general practitioner just to get a specialist recommendation. So that could save you the entire year's subscription cost in that one visit. Sign up, docuvax.com, or take control of your medical file by downloading the DocuVax app on your iPhone or Android device. I've been Back on Equal Footing, we're talking about kosher. Why kosher? We've been through a lot of the reasons. We should do these lightning rounds earlier. I love uh, these quick questions that, that, that come through. You ready, guys? Laura Shema, Dr. Roger Horowitz, Rabbi Mike Moskowitz. Here we go. These are either direct or paraphrased comments and questions uh, from listeners. Rabbi Moskowitz, here's a tough one. Insects, I understand are never kosher, but then I know that certain traditional Jewish communities eat locusts. What's this about? Are locusts kosher? The, there are uh, traditions of uh, chagovim, of, uh, of certain types of, uh, of locusts. 
Um, some of us have a tradition of what they look like, and some of us don't. So for those who are part of that tradition, uh, people do eat them. They are available under kosher um, certifications. Um, and for those of us who don't, uh, we just have to miss out. Okay. that was. I thought that was good. Okay. Dr. Horowitz, let's put this one to you. We've gotten a couple of comments from uh, Muslim listeners. Uh, there, here's one. There are many similarities between Jewish dietary laws, laws and halal dietary laws. Both observant Jews and Muslim, Muslims do not eat pork, blood, or dead animals that died of natural causes, illness, or attack. And for both, r- proper ritual slaughter is necessary. It goes on to point out that, that almost all kosher food uh, can be eaten by someone who's keeping halal, except of course for wine or alcohol. Is this actually a material reason for the expansion of the kosher market in the United States? It's actually Muslim halal observant eaters buying kosher food? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a big motivation for manufacturers. I had one food company representative explain that in his company, which was uh, uh, made um, salad dressings. One of the biggest clients for their kosher certified products were prisons because you had a lot of Muslims in the prisons that wanted to have food, wanted to be sure that food didn't have pork. And they trusted that if a product was kosher certified, they knew it would not have pork. And that then is a big market. So it's definitely a factor encouraging kosher certification. Yeah, and if you look at at immigration, Muslim immigration to the United States, it's been at a much higher clip for the last 20, 30 years than Jewish immigration. So if I I learn nothing else from this program, one of it is that maybe the kosher market is expanding because of our Muslim brethren buying kosher food absolutely okay. a- absolutely laura shamak question for you uh, a couple of listeners have written on this topic that we teased at before the la- before the last break about a vegetarian uh lifestyle uh saying that it's easier to keep vegetarian if you just keep kosher and you ignore the meat how many of your um of your clients of your the people you work with are really focused on on vegetarianism and being kashrut just kind of helps them along the journey I have clients who are vegetarians just for preference, but nothing really to have to do with for kosher reasons. Many, so like you were talking about before, that some people will keep a kosher style and eat in regular restaurants and say that they're more vegetarian, but that's really not keeping the real kosher laws. So maybe that's what, if that's what you're referring referring to. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction because you can be vegetarian and not be kosher because you right. are uh, you're, there's can be cross contamination, exactly, uh, et, et, et cetera. It's more kosher style. Yeah. So yeah, kosher style. Yeah, we didn't mention that in the program. A lot of people say they eat kosher style, and I love it. A listener has corrected me. It's the second floor of the Second Avenue Deli, not Katz's Delicatessen. That's still kosher. Thank you, kind listener, for correcting me. All right, we are done we have a lot of good other lightning questions we wouldn't we lightning round questions we weren't able to get to let we each have literally 20 seconds prime reason rabbi mike that you keep kosher because i think uh it helps me uh feel a level of sanctity in uh in the mundane in the mundane space love it laura shema why do you with one reason why do you keep kosher I think a healthy attitude towards food can promote self-well-being, gratitude, spiritual nourishment, and physical physical well-being with a connection to God and 
make you feel good. Love it. Dr. Roger Horowitz, you're up. Last but not least, what's the prime reason you keep kosher? It's with my ancestors. It's my history. I want to claim it. Yeah. All of those are valid. Exactly. We we that got on this program to all the 10 reasons that we had come up with pre a quick we a run through the ones we came up with with our wonderful producer. You grew number one, you grew up doing it. Number two, kosher observant people can eat in your home. We didn't mention that, but that's kind of falls in a community. Number three, lactose intolerance and allergies. Number four, high food production supervision. Number five, concerns for animal welfare. Number six, supports a vegetarian lifestyle. Number seven, good for halal observant. Haha. Number eight, preserve tradition and Jewish identity. Number nine, promote mindfulness about food. Number ten, it's a religious mandate. Thank you guys. Laura Shema, Dr. Roger Horowitz, Rabbi Mike Moskowitz. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Leave your brothers 